When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For all the latest cricket betting markets, in-play odds and promotions, visit williamhill.com or download the free app. 18 plus, please gamble responsibly. William Hill, it's who you play with. Hello, uh, welcome to Middle Please Umpire. I am Miles Jupp and I am joined as ever by a 95 mile an hour uh, World Cup winning, Ashes winning, Ashes losing, life winning, Mark Wood. Hello, Mark. Hello, Miles, and welcome to the Christmas edition. <laughs> <laughs> Have you gone back in time or forwards in time? Well, after Australia, I feel like back in time. Yeah, well, they've got very 1950s attitudes there, haven't they? And the COVID restrictions. It was like, it was like we, where we were two years ago, so... Um, it was tough work, but it was just a hard tour. I found everything seemed to go wrong, like the prep, everything in terms of like coaches going down with COVID. We didn't play very well at all. Um, it just seemed to be one thing after another where we just we just got battered, basically. There's another way to look at it. I don't mean to blow smoke up your chump, but you did return like in, in credit, I would have said. I mean, you had... yeah. And I know you're a team person and that won't matter to you. And you said in lots of interviews, oh, it doesn't matter if I'm doing well if we're still getting absolutely leathered. But you, you, if you if you were selfish enough, and you probably aren't, but to just sort of put the actual overall scores aside, you've you've come back with a good numbers and what have you. Yeah, well, it was probably, it was nice to, it was nice in the last game to get wickets just because I felt like in the previous matches I'd bowled well and not got those wickets. Probably in a, in a strange way, I felt Sydney, the first innings, was probably one of the best I've ever bowled for England in terms of I beat the bat a lot. Yeah. Um, I bowled in, in good areas. Oh. There was like two or three spells, one to Cummins, one to Stark, one to Kerry and Kawaja, yeah. one to Warner and Labashin. And all those spells I felt really, really threatened, but I just didn't get the wickets. But you did some some giant killing, didn't you? You took out you took out the big guns regularly. Yeah, yeah, which is which is nice, but when you're not getting that that sort of tally of wickets you can leave feeling deflated especially when I was putting in a lot of effort and the thing that was hurting as well is obviously there's been a lot of criticism aimed at the batsman and the thing that hurts you as a bowler is that when you're not getting the rest so if you if you get two innings rest or two sessions sorry rest you're then coming back out and you're, you're tired you're still sore you mentally you haven't switched off because if I especially when I was batting at number eight number eight <laughs> um Gilo's old slot, of course. Yeah. <laughs> but as soon as we were four wickets down, I had my whites, my thigh pad, and just thinking about batting. So actually, mentally, you're not getting that break. But what I would say is, and I did say this in an interview a lot, is we only actually bowled Australia out once, and that was the last game. So like we didn't get 20 wickets in any of the first four test matches, and all everything was labelled at the batsman. I think it's equally, you know, if we're in it as a team, we've got to look at how we're going to get them out. I know the pitches were... If you look at the scores in Australia, they, they tend to be a little bit higher than in England. But the, we, we've still got to try and bowl teams out or find a way in different conditions. We didn't catch as well as them. We didn't bowl as well as them. And we definitely didn't bat as well as them. So uh, a lot of it was was labelled at the coaches as well. And honestly, Miles, 
the coaches couldn't have done anymore. Like when I when I when I think to how much thrown the likes of Ant Borta, Jeetan Patel, Collie, like these the backroom staff, honestly, they work so hard. There's nothing as an England player. It's not like playing for Ashton 13. There's nothing as a player that you can't get. You can get in the indoor centre. Sometimes the nets weren't great or the facilities, but you can get in an indoor centre. You can get on a bowling machine. You've got time with coaches. You know, you've got the best physios, strength and condition coaches. So I just don't think we played as we just didn't play well. Like we got we got hammered, really, didn't we? Well, it, I mean, yeah. When you put it like that, it sounds like there's absolutely no no excuse, really. But at the same time, the uh, and I was actually reading an article in the Times cricket section. Um, by uh, their, their chief cricket correspondent, Michael, Michael Atherton. <laughs> Surprised you read that one. Yeah, he was acknowledging, you know, that there are, despite the sort of chaos and stuff, there are mitigating circumstances. They don't mitigate to the full extent, but things like the, the kind of bubble aspect of it and those sort of things and lots of things going wrong that were be, beyond your control. Do you think you've nailed down the number eight berth for the West Indies? Absolutely not. I said, Wooksy, you can have it back whenever you want. I mean, <laughs> after after uh, after getting you know my my toes nearly exploded off by Cummins, I was like, right, that's it. I've had enough at number eight. Get me back down to number nine, number ten. <laughs> I honestly thought he'd smash my foot up there. Like I remember hitting the deck, and when I hit the floor, I remember like this throbbing feeling coming on in my foot. And as I've got up, Johnny is literally in my face. He's like, hey, review it, review it, review. It. The first thing I'm thinking about is, have I got all my toes? Am I going to be able to walk? Could I still be able to, like, will I be able to play my son in the back garden? Johnny, review, do this. Where's it going? It's gone down leg. You might get away with it. I was like, John, and then he's reviewed it for me. And then I went, right, I sort of know where I am again now. <laughs> review. And the other man went, uh, Woody, you're five seconds late. Um, Johnny's reviewed it for you. I was like, all right, great. And then I saw the replay come on and it couldn't have been smashing the stumps anymore. So I just hobbled off. When we got to the last game at Hobart, I bowled that York out of Cummins from around the wicket. And it was honestly one of the best balls I ever bowled. I thought, I've done him. I've got him back. We're even. This is it. And it was missing the stumps. I was, I said, and when I said it comes, I thought, oh, I thought we're even there. He was like, honestly, I didn't say it. I was like, well, how do you think? I felt he nearly blew my foot off the game before. What's he like, Pat Cummins? I mean, when he's not steaming in at you to talk to him. Really nice guy. Um, seems really down to earth. He doesn't say a lot on the field, like doesn't sledge you or anything like that. But I don't feel he needs to. He's always at you with his ball and he's got quite a awkward action where it all happens. His arms are quite quick and he, he sort of releases it from like almost what feels like behind his head. So you feel like it's always coming like at you as a right-hander all the time. Um, and then the ones that he seems to like get wickets with, a bit, a bit like Stokes in a way, where his arm comes from that angle over his head, but he gets it to like nip away, and that's the ones that people edge. It's, it's just relentless, is what the word I would use to describe me. It just feels relentless. And that last game at Hobart, um, he let the handbrake off. So when I was batting at the end, when I managed to punch it on my stumps and. Um, that looked really good on replay. Um, I wasn't embarrassed by that at all. The great thing about Marnus, Marnus Labuschagne, just he he just sort of changed. Yeah, the he did me. He, he changed did, the he prism did, through did. which all deliveries were viewed. Once he's done that, that is, I suppose, this generation's Chris Reed ducking under a bouncer kind of uh, yeah. moment. Bouncer that turned out to be a Yorker. It's just it just changed it. You could have done anything, you know, in a way, and it, it would have been hard. You'd have been hard pressed to sort of. Well, that's uh, that's nice of you to say because I I did feel embarrassed. But just before that, Ollie Robinson came out the bat with me 
um, Wokesy just getting out and Cummins was bowling fast. I remember I was batting with Wokesy yesterday. Um, Wokesy sort of like gloved one to fine leg and, and like fended it off. And I said, um, what happened there, man? He just went, oh, just, it just bounced a little bit. So I faced Cummins. I've blocked the first one. Next one's a bouncer. I've tried to hook it. I got about like my hands in line with my head and the ball was already past me. And I remember thinking, wow, that was rapid. And at the end of the over, I mean, whoops, you've touched gloves. I said, um, why didn't you say that? It was, he was like, honestly, I didn't, I didn't want to say anything. It was absolutely rapid, but I didn't want you to, to feel frightened. So I thought, right, when Wokesy got out, I thought, I'm just going to tell Ollie Robinson straight here. So Ollie's sort of like, he's a bit like of a laid back character. Um, you know, nothing seems to phase him too much. He's just a, a bit of a like um, sloth. He just sort of like wanders out. He's a big guy. And he come out the middle and I said, uh, he said, uh, uh, all right, mate, uh, what's much happening out here in a right calm way? And I went, oh, switch on here. This is sharp. <laughs> Blood instantly drained from his face. And then I can't help but feeling that I maybe had something to do with his dismissal when he was bowled batting off the wicket <laughs> by, by Cummins. We could go through the whole thing chronologically if it's not too painful uh, for you. Hit you- me. You can respond either with words or just sounds, I guess, if that's easier. A few sort of got to... Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's is that Adelaide? I'm just <laughs> yeah, there's a ludicrous practice match that was sort of rained off and you guys all rocked yeah. up in the morning. So that was that was presumably absolutely worthless. You could have played that game in the Brecon Beacons. <laughs> and then uh so uh Brisbane then, first test, ball one. Mm. Who was the first person in the dressing room? Uh, Rory Burns. Yeah, <laughs> first person back <laughs> in the dressing room. Yeah, who? We're watching that first ball because presumably you watch the first ball, even if you're not watch the rest. What? What was the immediate response to? Um, so, it, so was it, don't, was, don't worry, lads. This sort of thing happens sometimes. <laughs> we'll bounce back. Brisbane, I found difficult in terms of that first day mentally was quite draining because yeah, yeah, emotionally you're so charged because it's like it's the first day. Yeah, really nervous. But then when you're into the series, you're just into the series. Yeah. So that first morning, I just remember feeling me and Leachy talking. We, we by the end of the day, we were exhausted just from watching and being around, and um, it was quite it was quite a weird feeling. And Burnsy, who got bored like that, I mean, his movements were were bigger than normal. That's he normally clips that for four all day. If you ball straight at Burnsy, that's his meat and drink. He he clip you for four. And I just think because it was the first ball, and maybe he was a bit nervous, the crowd were going, his movements have become bigger, which is what happens when you're nervous. Like you move slightly more. You might push at the ball more if you're nervous as a, as a bowler. You might bowl a no no ball, more more likely to bowl. Yeah. No ball or a full toss. Or like, you know, something might happen. And I just think his movements were bigger than normal and it just managed to sneak around the back of his leg, which is disappointing. But I remember Brisbane as well, like the bounce. So obviously we talk about Australia. I didn't, the rest of the pitches felt quite true in terms of like, they just felt like normal, good pace, good bounce, quite true. Brisbane, I remember I felt almost like a trampoline. So I remember coming to bowling what I felt would be like back of a length, which I would defend maybe between my belly button and my chest. I'd defend with a straight bat, but that was actually coming to my neck and my head. It was quite hard to get the, the perception of the length, but if you were if you were well drilled, I mean, could you be almost get to the point where you would instinctively back of a length, you'd actually be ducking, or is that too is that too much of a gamble? Probably, but you have to get through maybe 30, 40 
balls before you do that. I mean, it, it can't you can't just go in and then ten balls start dumping length balls. Otherwise, you would look <laughs> you, you'd get in trouble, wouldn't you? So you've got to look the score. You got through twenty five overs. So I was going to say when we after our disastrous innings was over. Does that that's a good feeling to get it? And obviously, you'd rather only get through twelve overs because they've been skittled. But yeah, you know, you've you I know that you've put a lot of work in to to have a proper stint out there in that first test. Get did that feel good? Yeah, and I felt up all quickly, which was good. Um, I had a good battle with David Warner. I found Warner a tough nut to crack all series to go inside. I felt I bowled really well at him, but I only got him out once. He was just, you know, gritty and got stuck in. Um, Smith was a, a nice wicket because that was one that we'd planned. I felt the same with Marnus, actually. was They left really well, Australia, compared to us. We did, we did a, a look at the lengths that each team had bowled, and the lengths were very similar. But they had left balls over the stumps a lot more than we had. We'd played it more. But I felt like with Marnus, to me especially, he played at those balls that he was leaving to other people. And Rudy thought that was because of the pace. So with me being skiddy, I think he played at those balls and that's why I got the nicks. But if, you, if you've got the mindset of, say, Labashain or Smith, then they turn, you know, leaving is proactive. Like an English leave looks like a sort of defensive, oh, not now, not yet, bit early for me kind of thing. Whereas if you've got one of their kind of slightly showy-offy techniques, then as a bowler, when they're leaving you, you feel, presumably you feel like they are doing something to you. And they're saying to you, right, you've wasted a ball. And there's something more about it. It it doesn't seem like a passive act when they do. Yeah, uh, yeah, and... To be honest, it's a, it's a bit off-putting as a baller as well because you've got to keep your focus on instead of going, what the hell are these two doing? You've got to like, <laughs> you've got to like sort of keep your focus. But I think that's what they're after. You know, the, the, they love the battle. And in my mind, it was just you know I was focused because he's such he's such a good player. I will know I won. I was really focused on how I was trying to get him out. But I didn't feel like I had the wood over him like everybody was suggesting. I just felt like I had gotten it right a couple of games and managed to get him out. But then I remember at Sydney, I was sort of, I can't remember if it was a deep square or mid-on or something like that. And Rudy was waving at us and I must have been in my own little world, sort of, I don't know, thinking about, I don't know, Miles Jupp and, and Mastermind. That's right. It's, it's easy to drift off, isn't it, in the middle of an Ashes series? I think that's what people <laughs> forget in terms of focus. I, I did it myself in a panto once, Woody, so I completely... <laughs> I can completely empathise with that sort of thing. I mean, these things are only zipping around at 90-odd miles an hour. You've got a little bit of time. <laughs> Don't forget the me time. It's about getting in the right headspace. So, Man- it's in the Manus and sort of... Uh, Rudy's trying to wave it to me to say, Ron, Manus did. And Labashian actually turned to me and went, Woody, uh, Rudy, once he says you're on because I'm in that end. I was like, all right, thanks, mate. <laughs> so... You were doing a show, weren't you, talking about the cricket? I was doing a thing on B- BT Sport. What was your review after Brisbane? I think we must have uh, said, gosh, that didn't go No, no, well. that's not your TV voice. That's not your TV voice. Uh, well, is it not? Because it, it's a sort of fan thing, the that thing. So we're not meant to sound like experts. We're meant to sound like pe- people that don't just like, you know, armchair people. I think we'd have probably said, oh, no, that didn't go well. We would have compared the Burns dismissal with the Harmison uh wide i would as ever have said but i thought mark wood had a jolly good game um, <laughs> and that as well part of that's about so it's filmed at home and i and i they sort of do a little bit of set dressing so i got to i, I got to go get my collection of cricket shirts so i think i think the first one i had the ashington shirt and the monmouth shirt behind me um uh, i suppose in a little nod to to uh 
our our brand that we've got going on here were you trying to be like on the fence are you just saying look that was rubbish well the thing is we're not we're not journalists so we don't need to be we don't need to be sort of neutral and, and things like that you could be like oh that was really disappointing or whatever whereas uh or or words to that effect um, oh mark's but- falling over again yeah, Mark. He really should. He needs to get. I might send him some knee pads. Yeah, that, that sort of thing. But also in that, then I have to have a more neutral thing. I can't. You know, we're we're, we're people that we all know each other. But we're talking about it, but I can't keep going. Well, Mark Wood, who's my friend, bowled particularly well. I thought. <laughs> um, so we, yeah, we we sort of chat about it. But that was quite. That was that was quite a fun thing to who, do. Who were you on with? Well, in the first episode, he did a little bit by. Um, he just sent it over to me on WhatsApp. Uh, Dave, David Gower was on that program. Of course, by the end of the series, he's pitch side, giving it both. I battles. saw Lord Gower, yes. Yeah. Well, I saw you did a nice. You called him Lord Gower. He looked very. He looked very delighted by that. I didn't think Notorious Dig would have went on done well on BT Sports, <laughs> so I went with Lord Gower. I think you should try it where, uh, wherever possible. Uh, Adelaide, we don't need to talk about because you weren't picked for. Uh, is that the day night things? You do sort of get sleepy around about six thirty, seven in the evening. It was bizarre. They are honestly bizarre games. The thing I found the worst about them is the eating, because you wake up, you have your breakfast, you eat at lunch, then you have lunch in the game, then you have tea in the game, then you eat after the game at eleven o'clock. Yeah. So I just felt like I was just eating twenty four seven. Well, I do you know sometimes if you're if you're filming something and they're doing like a night shoot or what's called a split day. The, the same thing might happen. So you might not be, they might be shooting from say noon until midnight, but if you're not called until three o'clock or whatever, you wake up at your normal time anyway, sort of seven in the morning, eight in the morning, then you have your breakfast and you, you arrive at work and then they go, oh yeah, yeah, lunch is at uh, five o'clock. And you think, what? But I've, I've been away, yeah. you know, I've been awake for hours. And of course, for, for me, that's, that's really, you know, one of the main reasons I'm in the industry is to eat food out of a van. <laughs> Uh, and I find it, I find it very discombobulating. Um, if you're not picked in a game, I mean, how do you resist the? Te- maybe the, the, I have a different mindset to you. How do you resist the temptation? Because presumably, when you're not picked, a bit like me not getting a job, there's an element of you. You know, you're sort of smarting a bit. How do you resist the temptation to just wander around the dressing room making a series of really unhelpful remarks? <laughs> it depends what kind of remarks you mean. I guess things like, mm, of course, just uh, just had a look at the scoreboard. It doesn't seem to be going, um, oh, terribly well. I wonder if it's a sort of selection issue more than anything. Um, <laughs> no, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'd get away with that. To be honest. No, I mean, presumably, also when you're not picked, you are as ever. You've got the high vis on. You're filling the drinks. You're keeping people hydrated, Mark. That is, that's a busy time for you. So from the last game at Brisbane, Brody and Jimmy didn't play in the experience campaign, as I mentioned. They had decided that. As fast bowlers, they should only do the batting and that the batsmen and specialist fielders should do the fielding. And normally what happens is you sort of, you would pitch in throughout the day. So you do one session each and everybody would just, you know, clamber in together at different points. Whereas they had decided that they would only do the batting so they would get a couple of days off while we bowled. And then, so when we got Adelaide, they kept the same. Well, a couple of days off from occasionally wandering out with a bottle of something and a change of gloves. Exactly. So while we were fielding, I didn't have to do anything. So I spent, you know, the best part of two days just doing some training, you know, going in the jacuzzi in the back, 
<laughs> well, that's the sort of thing I'd say. While while England is sort of in the middle of an awful, awful collapse, to come back in and go, "Whoa, does anyone find? Gosh, the, the jets on the jacuzzi are a bit strong, aren't they? Quite good, really <laughs> that, good for sort of foot massage." What, what, what's fine. going on out in the middle, then, guys? Because I've been honestly, oh, I'm like a prune. I've been in there so long. Um, <laughs> yeah, that wouldn't have gone down well, would it? So, third test. Uh, I mean, there's not much to talk about because the whole game was so sort of ludicrously brief can you sum up though when you've got you know that's after what 11 12 days of play suddenly the ashes the uh you know the spoons eat has been planning for uh for two years suddenly it's all over what as a dressing room that thing about like that over the course of your career can, can the highs outnumber the lows uh what what is the feeling of a, of a team and what is your that what's the kind of decisive action you have to take when you're in a situation like that, there's still two games of the series to play. The actual contest element of it, in a way, is over. What do you think, having been through that experience, say if you turn to coaching the future, what are you then saying to a dressing room after a result like that? When you become, you know, 10 years from now, when you're the uh, director of men's cricket, um, what are you going into the dressing room and saying in a situation like that? Well, I felt, I remember feeling horrendous at the end of the game. Um, felt like, you know, you'd let down. I mean, spoons and root were getting, you know, hammered from every side. Feel like you've let them down because you know they've got to face the music and they're the ones that are in question. When actually, like, it's all of us as a group that haven't performed. It's not just them two. So I remember feeling really bad for them. I just felt like you'd let supporters down and people at home. You know, it wasn't through, or, or it, it wasn't through like an effort or anything like that. We just. It seemed to be whenever you know the, an opposition side gets in front, we, we can't claw it back. Um, so if it was me being a coach, I would focus on you know we have to we had to start games better. So at times we bowled well, like in Melbourne, we I felt we bowled really well, but then we just we didn't get the the runs that we needed. Being in the contest, the battle a little bit more, and although the series was gone, which was mentioned, I feel like. You know, you're still playing for England. You're still playing for England against Australia. I mean, it's not, yes, in the wider context, the series is gone, but would you not want to be a match winner and think of a game where you did really well against Australia? Every time we step out on the field for England, whether the series is won, gone, whatever, it's a chance to win that particular match for England. So, um, that would be that would be my view. A point Stuart Broad made a number of interviews about you've got to win the games that are in front of you. That's That needs to be your sort of your sort of preoccupation, really. I mean, there used to be that thing in the 90s where we would lose the series and then, you know, things like Adelaide 94, 95 or whatever, when various people were sort of called up from club cricket, they were playing in the suburbs and whatever, and suddenly, you know, and you in the 90s, you would, you would, you would cling to your one victory per series. The other thing I was going to say, actually, in mitigation, from a scheduling point of view, this volume of cricket happening that quickly, momentum becomes therefore even harder to turn around. So 2005 Ashes, you know, we lose the first test quite heavily. There's quite a long time before the next test. You know, people like Andrew Flintoff went went away to like France on holiday for a bit and get his head together and things like that. In a series like this, where it's all really sort of compact, you know, you've not got many days off at all between the third it's not test. Just that, though. It's, not, it's not just that, that though, like in terms of the bubble and stuff, you're not getting away. So you're not getting away from it. You travel, the travel days are long. You get there. I mean, for me, Melbourne was tough because I didn't have my family and it was around Christmas time. So I found, I found that hard. Um, 
I think it's easy to throw excuses and say, oh, like, it wasn't this, like, you're still sitting in nice hotels and stuff. COVID was around, obviously, bubble life and stuff, but top bottom is we just didn't play very well. And um, the schedule could have been bad. It was bad for Australia. The difference was their bowlers were bowling 60, 70 overs a test. We were bowling 150, 180. So they were, we saw at Sydney by the end of the game, because their bowlers had to try and bowl out and the bowl for a long time, they were tired at the end. So if we'd done that all series, it could have been different. We know, obviously, if the batters had stuck in more, then it would have given us a better chance. But like I mentioned, we didn't bowl them out. We only bowled them out once. So we weren't, we weren't bowling like their lads were as well. So um, we were just beaten on all aspects, really. I mean, I was very emotional when Johnny got his 100. You know, to know what he'd been through, I'd spent lockdown with him. He'd really struggled in the 14 days because he's done a lot of it. Um, he's done probably more than any other player. Yeah, he struggles with it. He, he likes being out and about. That's what type of character he is. The week that he got 100 was the anniversary of, he, of his dad's death. Um, you know, there were so many things. He, he's been in and out of the team, up and down the order. You know, when he has played of late, it's almost like he's. And I know how this feels. Like he's on trial a little bit because he has to. He has to get a score to stay in the team. He doesn't like get a run of games, mm. and that that way he's under pressure. Feels like he's got to do well. So I was really, really happy for him when he got his hundred. I was actually feeling quite emotional. That that innings I thought was was amazing. It was a, as a viewer, it was a very brilliant thing uh, to watch. And again, just that sort of uh, there's something very infectious, I think, about his sort of enthusiasm uh, and his passion. And we on the um, the BT Sport thing I was hosting, we sort of focused in that. It's just it's all a bit of sideshow, but just him and Stokesy giving a bit back to the uh, Australian fans that were being rude to them. I absolutely loved that that kind of just sort of standing up, and he just there's this sort of wonderful pride I think about Johnny Bairstow, and I I do you know because he he came on this didn't he? It was great fun. It was odd though as well with Johnny B because he was sort of the incumbent, and yet the series started and suddenly he's he's not in it. So that 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 was you know like. A, uh, I suppose the Anderson spell, like your spell at the end. Ironically, I stayed in room, I stayed in room six three seven, and I got six for thirty seven. So I'm now not staying in any room below the number nine or eight. So if I'm not in room eight two four or nine two three, then I'm not yeah. staying. Don't stay on the ground floor. Oh, hello, yeah. Mark. Uh, you're in room <laughs> zero two four nine, <laughs> and, and it hasn't rained here for three months. Good luck out there. Yeah. <laughs> I tell you what I did for the first time ever this trip, and I, t- I told the coaches this. Was it was the first time in a first class game I've ever gone for a hundred, and all the all the coaches and Jimmy and everyone were like, you know, a proper bowl until you've gone for a hundred. And I remember I had I think it was three for ninety eight, and Nathan Lyon was in, and we were doing the bouncer plan, and he hit me out the ground for six. And I actually felt strangely proud that at least I've got a proper way. At least I've gone for a hundred and a proper way <laughs> out the ground. That's true. There's uh, something glorious about that, isn't it? It's the you know triumph and stuff and success is all very well but it's the hard things that that sort of put the miles under your belt in a way i also got the best uh best sledge of the trip there at hobart i remember feeling that the boundary i was on the corner and i was tired bowled something like five or six overs of bouncers i sort of put my hands on my knees and i leaned forward and this Aussie guy from him jeez what did you have for breakfast mate <laughs> 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 It's sort of relentless. I remember having an experience down 
somewhere in the southwest having a gig that was just I must have been about 22 and I just had abuse sort of hurled at me for 20 minutes and I was so young I thought I have to do my time I don't get my money but it was just like a wall of abuse and I came off and I was almost too scared to go into the dressing room again so I went to the bar and there happened to be another comic uh, who was in the area just come round and he just handed me a shot or something and said well done mate and I said what what do you mean he goes you're a proper comic now because you've been you've been through that and it was a kind of yeah there was it was sort of what I needed to hear at that moment um so fourth test and then uh fifth test Hobart I mean gosh um you feel you didn't bowl well but I do you, is there a kind of cosmic thing where you think your wickets then are a reward for how you've done all series or is it just sometimes it sometimes it's your day or not or sometimes it's your day for the first half of the day and then the second half of the day it all goes horribly wrong again. Well, it was actually Stokesy that changed my fortunes that game. Um, he handed me my 25th cap at the start of the, the day, which is a very proud moment. He spoke very well to me. Um, you know, it was very, very nice what he said, and obviously I'll, I'll treasure that. But I put my new 25th cap on, so you have the England cap with the little 25 on, number underneath the badge, and I bought three of us, none for 31, and I, I've never won that cap again. <laughs> so that'll stay in the box and never come out again. I'll wear my, my other end. I'd forgotten that. Yes, uh, I was following that bit on the sort of ball, ball by ball on ESPN, I think. And I thought, what, what is going on out there? So I was, yeah, I was, I, I would have assumed you were not bowling as well when you were going for 31 off three overs than when you were taking six for 37. Look, d- didn't get us wrong. I didn't, I didn't bowl well, but I just felt like they just anywhere I bowled, they tried to hit me for four. I just sort of skidded on. I don't know if it was like, you know, Broad and Robinson with a the height. They were getting the ball to nip around on a green surface. I don't know if the ball stopped moving, but I was getting no movement and I was just sliding on and they seemed to just counterattack against me. Every time I pitched it up, head or Labashian would whack it. Anytime I was slightly short, they would whack it. I was like, what am I doing here? And it wasn't until maybe I had about none for 60 or none for 70 off about, you know, 10, 12 overs. I was going at a, high run rate I think it was going at like 7, 8 and over and Stokely said look why instead of doing this why don't we just go all out on our warfare with your pace like do something different and I got Green out then I got you know Cummins and Star out so it was actually Stokely that said look let's change the pace of the game change how you're bowling so we're not just bowling everybody bowling the same stuff let's let's change it up and thankfully for him and then the, the tactics seemed to work because when I bowled cross seam when I hit the seam, it seemed to stick in the wicket and bounce a little bit more. But if it hit the, the shine, it skidded through quite nice. So it was actually quite hard for them to play because it, it almost was like two different bouncers. You had one that would fly through off the skid and then one that would be stoppy and bouncy, which is the one that got sort of Smith out. And then the skidder one was the one that sort of got head out with his glove down the leg side, just skidded through. It was actually quite hard, I feel, for people to play so now then, so uh, back home, mercifully, um, uh, obviously things have started to happen in response to that. Uh, Chris Silverwood is no longer the coach. Ashley Giles uh, has gone. Uh, by the time this has gone out, who knows? Um, Ashley Giles, who I uh, and once took part in a balloon debate at uh, Lords. You know, when you say, "Oh, who do we save from a balloon if we have to keep throwing people out?" And it, this was can't remember what year it was, but I chose Gilo and. Uh, uh, spoke about about him probably partly about that sort of fifty he scored on the last day of the two thousand five Ashes, but in, and and I I opened with him once again a game for the Taverners, um, 
Uh, and he was very nice to me. And uh, I suppose he finds himself in the position he's in now, taking some of the sort of flack for it. So obviously we, Ashley Jails gets J-Law. Did he call you Maylor? Uh, I I don't I don't know if my name stuck. Uh, to be honest, <laughs> he probably had a lot of things going on. But I was very interesting. I've got a transcript here in front of me of um, uh, the statement that Ashley Giles gave when he stood down and um, stirring words. Actually, um, he said, uh, Gilo, uh, the higher you build your barriers, the taller I become. The further you take my rights away, the faster I will run. You can deny me. You can decide to turn your face away. No matter, because there's something inside so strong. I know that I can make it, though you're doing me wrong, so wrong. And I think those are very stirring, <laughs> very stirring words, actually. And he sort of encapsulates a lot of the, the situation uh, through that. Um, I, uh, what is your, what is your favourite memory of working alongside uh, your fellow England number eight, uh, Ashley Giles? Well, I think if, if you put them both together, J-Lo and Spoons, I'll say firstly, it's never nice to see people lose their jobs, especially good people. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed working with Spoons even before he was head coach and he was bowling coach. Um, Ashley Giles um, is someone that I've, I felt like carried a lot of um, presence and um, he was always brutally honest, which I really valued. Um, That's really you know, useful, was, isn't it? Being that there's sort no of... bullshit. And, yeah. and I actually liked the fact that he was like that, like you would tell you straight and um, not in a nasty way or anything, just you would tell you straight and I remember, you know, Jairo was there during the Sydney game and we were down, obviously, loads of coaches because everybody had COVID. Um, Graham Thorpe was the head coach and we had about two coaches left after that. And Jairo was there and he he was really complimentary in my bowling and, you know, helped me with little tips and things. Like that. And I thought, you know, like he, he went out his way to say some things to me, which was, I thought, really nice. and. Um, Chris Silverwood, as a guy, he was just desperate to do well. I felt so sorry for him when he wasn't there with COVID because his son got it. Then, you know, you have to do a week's quarantine or something. Then five days in, his wife got it, so he had to do another week. Then at the end, he got it, so he had to do... In the end, he did like two and a half, three weeks of, of quarantine till all his family had shipped out with COVID. That is, that is an impossible situation, isn't it? And I suppose the kind of risk... You know that that sort of battle to accommodate sort of the uh, familial needs. You know that is that's kind of that's the risk in it. I always felt I always felt that Spoons backed me. Like I always felt that he he, he wanted me in the team. He you know obviously sometimes I didn't play and stuff, but I felt like he really valued me in the dressing room and as a player. So not just I think that's probably the thing I like most with Spoons like. As a bloke, he valued my opinion as well as my, not just my cricket, which, you know, was really nice. Because he'd say things like, Woody, what, what are the jacuzzis like here? And you'd go, they're absolutely smashing. <laughs> absolutely yeah. smashing, coach. Yeah. Mm. Um, the only bit of Giles' statement I didn't really understand was um, the second verse when he said... Oh, um, um, about the gumdrop buttons. It's the bit when he says, uh, the more you refuse to hear my voice, the louder I will sing. <laughs> but otherwise, otherwise, I think by the end he was just getting emotional. <laughs> I'd just like to take a moment to thank our founding sponsors, Cricketers Gin. Cricketers Gin is the perfect podcast partner, as this corker of a gin began its innings at the local village cricket club in Pinkney's Green, Berkshire. 
Over a G&T, the founders decided that this quintessential British game, along with the wild botanicals growing in abundance, deserved a bespoke gin of its own. Cricketers features milk thistle, wild marjoram and blackberries, amongst other botanicals, delivering a smooth juniper-forward gin. If pink is your preference, they also have a delicious raspberry-distilled pink gin. Please take a look at their website, cricketersgin.com, where you'll find a range of gin hampers too. Apply the code CRICKET and you'll receive a discount off your purchases. Cricketers, a small batch gin and a family-owned business. William Hill's Safer Gambling Tools help you stay in control. You can set deposit limits, session reminders, and take timeouts whenever you need them. 18 plus, please gamble responsibly. William Hill, it's who you play with. So what's it been like coming home? Let's We've, we've talked about um, the nightmare that was the 21-22 Ashes series from which you uh, emerged with credit that you refused to take. What, you've come home, you've adjusted back to normal life, you've been going to co-op, getting your meal deals. It's all it's all good? And mindful chef, please, Miles, honestly. The mindful chef, that's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so I've, been, no, I've just been settling in. It took me about a week to get over jet lag. Um, two, three o'clock in the morning, get-ups, um, just sat in the in the room board um when you come back after work do you do that thing when you try and slot back into the household and realize everyone's been getting on with things without you and that you're fantastic although you're desperate to be at home you are fantastically in the way yeah absolutely you can't remember quite which way around you put forks in the drawer yeah me and sarah will argue the first week i'm back of every tour without fail there's something just because she's in a rhythm of doing things for harry and you know the house and stuff and i've been used to being away and then it just um, that first we will always argue about something whether it's you know washing dishwasher or you know whatever it may be we'll always argue with someone well i rang you once and i could hear her angrily shouting in the background uh how the hell are you going to get results if you're not posting first innings totals and i thought <laughs> oh God, she does she does sound cross yeah <laughs> yeah she she sometimes wakes up in the night and says watch out for the Cummins in swinger mark watch it <laughs> I can't bear the way that he sort of lets go of the ball from behind his head. And then it's not yeah. long to the West Indies suddenly. I mean, we don't know anything about mm. the, the West Indies tour. I don't know if you've put your CV in or not. Obviously, you've done BT Sport. You seem to be moving up bit by bit. I mean, at what point will you become the director of cricket for England cricket? I have, and I, I just I wasn't doing much earlier in the week. So in a sort of a panic, I applied for all of the jobs. So so uh, if, you, if you were given the England cricket head coach job, what would your first team talk be? Uh, well, I've got a friend that does really nice embroidery. Uh, and what I'd get her to do is a selection of framed things that just have really useful slogans on. So I'd get like a nice one, probably sort of uh, kind of like red on a white background, because um, those are the national colours, obviously. Uh, one that says right areas. <laughs> a- another one that says uh, e- execute your skills. One brings two. One, one brings two. Um, on your, on your toes, lads. Yeah. Walking in with a bowler. Yeah. Uh, bowler's name, uh, please. <laughs> uh, wide ball scorer. Uh, just, just to sort of keep people fresh in the game. One that says brackets, snapping of fingers, and then says, uh, keeping the game woody. Uh, just things like that. And I, I don't think I'd say anything. I would just hang these around the room in which we were, uh, you know, presumably some sort of a holiday in just off a roundabout somewhere where you meet to discuss all these plans. And I would just, I'd just say, guys, I'm not going to say anything. What I want you to do is walk around, uh, just look at these artworks effectively and just, just have a little think about them. Just, just 
just just reflect and um and there'll be another one that says and strategically are you are you playing the spinner yeah i'd, I'd have thought so uh i might play three spinners and you though that's my top four uh in the batting order and then it's... after ollie robinson brought spinners he counted as one of your spinners or is he the seamer he wasn't bad actually was it i mean they said he was unfit and i thought i don't know where i would come on that sort of uh uh, on that scale, I was uh, I did a movie once um, from which I was, as with many movies, almost entirely cut. Uh, the Tarzan. Have I told you this Tarzan film? I was playing like the butler at Greystoke, and Alexander Skarsgård, who was sort of like had a, when I was introduced to him, he was just in a pair of tracksuit bottoms and had a sort of eight pack. It was looked absolutely ter- terrifying. Uh, and uh, there, he had a sort of personal trainer near him all the time, and we sort of was sitting around between takes. And his person, he, he was like saying, "Can I get a cappuccino?" And the trainer was going, "That is your one for the day." And then he, was, and then he started like doing like the sort of pinch and inch thing, and he started. And I thought he better not be going around the circle here because if he's, he's telling the bloke playing Tarzan he, <laughs> that he could be fitter, trust me, the, ble- the bloke playing the butler is an absolute stake underneath these clothes. Um, so yeah, that, but that's what my management style would be. It would be it would be just trying to get the message through, message across through uh, framed embroidery, uh, and uh, that. How do you think? Is there it? Well. Let's not be negative about it. Is there anyone that you think wouldn't respond to that approach? Everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I, I respect. I respect your candor. No, I would. I, I, it would be one of many, many, many jobs uh, to which I would be utterly ill-suited. What, what have you got coming up lately, Miles? Well, I've been. Uh, I'm going to Stockton on Tees in County Durham, yes, in the northeast. The, yeah. In the northeast, um, I've been doing a. Sort would, of, would there be a ticket available for me? Uh, there would be a ticket available for you. Just because I'm just thinking of when you, I got a ticket for you at the Oval, and obviously you're in hospitality. You got the the drinks yeah. at the top, um, the great view. Yes. You're at the cricket. You got the other I'm just wondering what kind of ticket I'm going to get. I got a shout out. You you trotted you trotted over to the boundary and shouted up to to me and Nathan. So yeah, that was uh, yeah. I'd do something. Yeah, similar. I don't. It won't be quite the same level of hospitality, but I'll see if I can. So, um, why? Why am I not getting? The, why am I not getting the top ear treatment? I th- I think they just have different hospitality facilities at this particular theatre. But if we could get some, okay. I don't know, peanuts in a bowl, something like that. <laughs> uh, I could. If you send me, if you send me the cost of your parking, I'll reimburse you. What What are you going to do with um for for the shout out? Because I feel very nervous if you shout out mid gig. Oh, probably just a couple of songs. Uh, yeah, just a bit of um, yeah, dock, dock of the Bay, and you can come up and do a whistling solo. So I've been doing that. I've been doing. Um, uh, I've been doing some uh, writing. Uh, I've been doing um, some auditions. I did a thing. I did a gig. Uh, it was. Uh, it was absolutely terrifying. So partly because of COVID and partly because of circumstances, I haven't done stand up for three years. And then I did a gig for the first time about a week week or two ago it was a memorial gig for a friend of mine jeremy hardy who i used to do the news quiz with jeremy was probably the greatest satirist that this country has uh, produced in the last 50 years and he uh, uh passed away a couple of years ago because of covid the memorial was only thing and i so for my first stand-up gig back for three years just to ease myself in gently uh i went on first at the hammersmith apollo in front of three thousand people by which point I was emotionally and nervously up the hill or down the hill. I went up, up into the up the hill into the wind. Uh, I was oh, no. I was chairing a dressing room with um, a few other comics, and I was pretty much curled up in a ball in the corner, going, "Oh God, oh God, oh God!" <laughs> until it was my turn to go on stage. But actually, it was it was very nice. But it was 
genuinely genuinely terrifying so when you were on stage so you just hang up posters and say this is my this is my i didn't dare yeah i didn't have the nerve to say anything i just i, went, I walked out with a collection of uh, my jokes that had been embroidered and framed <laughs> and held them up and then of course oh you know what it's like in the three thousand the people at the back would go can't really see and so i ended up having to say just passing them around uh the whole thing took nearly four hours uh by the time people had see it and uh you know <laughs> i wonder what kind of put so like you're obviously talking about being nervous because I'm terrible before I bath. Like, I get real nervous. I wonder what me and you would be like in the dressing room before we went out of bath. I'm nervous before you bat, Mark. I uh, I think, because I've got a sort of calm demeanour when I'm presenting or performing. Just sweating, sweating externally, but internally. Yeah, yeah, there's that thing. It's like a swan, isn't it? You're sort of above the surface, you look all right, and underneath you're paddling <laughs> furiously. I and so you after you come off and you're going oh and people say oh you don't oh you look fine up there you look you think no absolutely not I'm a complete <laughs> I'm a complete wreck and it's weird if you suddenly do something with someone that you've known socially for years and they've never worked with you before and then moments before it you're suddenly the nerves or you know when I first started doing I don't know after dinners or whatever I'd get nervous about a month in advance and then the more you do them it gradually glows until you're just nervous for the like the like five minutes before you go on stage. But if there some, happens to be someone around at like the organiser of the event, and it may be you've been up in your hotel room or whatever, and you come down, so that you, haven't, you haven't turned up at four o'clock and been, hello, yes, it's all going to be lovely. Uh, that bit hasn't happened. Suddenly it's just like you're going on stage at quarter to ten at the Grosvenor or whatever, and at 20 to 10 you're behind a fire door going, oh, oh. And they're suddenly going, have, have you ever done this before? Uh, and, you know, you, you, they're kind of seeing you at your absolute worst. But I, who... Who is there? Who is, like you were saying, Ollie Robinson is a calm character. Who who else in the dressing room? You just think God, they're absolutely bulletproof. They just don't. They just don't show any stress. Uh, and do you think inside they're actually in real trouble emotionally? It, dep- it dep- depends. I feel like I've obviously spent Butler being seven, me being eight. This trip, I've spent a lot of time on Joss. Joss phenomenal. He was having blocker injections in his finger before he went out to bat at Sydney. Um, and he really helped save that game. He played that innings at Adelaide where he he was tough and gutsy for a long time. And he he actually seems really tired before he bats. He yawns a lot and, you know, seems quite unfazed. That is a manifestation of nerves, that kind of thing where suddenly before you've got to do something, you actually get, probably because everything's sort of racing away, you're suddenly sort of very tired. Yeah. Root chills in the dressing room, just sits on these, sits on these pads and just relaxes. I can't believe it. To be fair, if I had a test batting average, career batting average of 50, I'd be really relaxed as well. Um, Stokes, he gets ready at literally the last minute, so he'll fall asleep in a chair. Then he'd be next in the bat and he's scrambling to get his kit on because he's just waits till the last minute. He never gets his... Like, if it's me, it's like I'm three out, three people out, and I'm starting to get thigh pads on. That that, that must help everyone else relax, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> have, have, you thought, have you thought about the message that that's sending out, do you think, Mark? <laughs> the two most, most nervous are definitely me and Leach. So we obviously batted a long time together, but I get really, really chatty before I bat and just pre-batting nerves, as I call them, pre-batting nerves, pre-batting nerves. And I just start talking absolute gobbledygook, waste a lot of energy. People, a lot of people seem to veer away from me. Oh, it's it's it's, it's hard, hard, hard to imagine you going through a phase like that. People just sort of, people just sort of veer away from me when I, when they know I'm in the next in the bat. Don't go in there. Willie's Willie's waiting to bat. <laughs> he's, yeah. he's gone absolutely mad. He's whistling. The, he's been whistling the Antiques Roadshow theme for four hours. <laughs> uh, 
now listen, is there any sandwich news from Jack Leach? Because he's been a bit sort of mm. indecisive in the past. He was kind enough to to leave a, a WhatsApp message for you with a sort of new fa- sandwich favour. Has that changed at all? Has there been such a whirlwind in the ashes that he's not had time to think about it? No, but but something I have got a Jack Leach exclusive, though, is that he really doesn't like cucumber. Really? Mm. Mm. That he's, is... a, he's against all cucumber. Every time we went out for food, he made a specific request to the waiter or waitress saying no cucumber. So that rules out that rules out sort of a lot of the ham salad or chicken salad options, or it sort of rules out the, the classic ham and cucumber sandwich. Does he say it habitually? Is he is it just so part of him? So they say, well, would you like a start? And he'll say, I'll have the prawn cocktail. No cucumber, and then he's like, I'll have steak and chips. No cucumber, and then he's like, I'll I'll have the apple cobbler with custard. No cucumber. <laughs> Uh, can, I, can I just have a small espresso? No cucumber. <laughs> the way that he's the way that he started to say it now, he's uh, to the weird or weird. They've actually started questioning whether he has allergy issues. Sorry, are you allergic to cucumber? No, no, I just don't like it. Have you got allergy issues or are these anger issues? Is it yeah. kind of <laughs> Marnish Labashane? No cucumber. Yeah, <laughs> that is that's a hell of a scoop, Mark. Well, it'll be interesting to see what we do for the Western Indies. Yeah, well. I mean, these are the sort of decisions that I'm going to have to take, aren't they? But I think, <laughs> I think the first thing I'll do is get the embroidery sorted, and then I'll get it, and then I'll take it to a nice framing place, and then I'll, and then I will have to have a think about the makeup of the squad. I'll probably check the weather in advance as well. If it's going to be rainy, there's no point sort of picking your best players. It's all about who's best in the dressing room. Uh, we need to get you kind of tranquilized prior to your batting or whatever. <laughs> so I think the first thing I'm going to do is get, yeah, so I need an embro- a team embroiderer. There probably is one already, isn't there, the amount of backroom staff you've got. Uh, I've just put an advert out for an embroiderer who can do throwdowns. Uh, I'll get an anaesthetist who will basically <laughs> put you into an elective coma until we're six wickets down, just, just to help everybody else. Uh, I'm going to get a kind of... Um, Sort of full-time catering person. Sandwich maker. Yeah. Someone else whose job it is just a sort of cucumber checker. Have you got one of those already? No. <gasps> yeah. So you need you need someone on that full-time just to help Jack relax. He can think more. He can spend more time sort of shadow bowling, not panicking constantly about sort of any uh, unwanted cucumber lurking uh, in the vicinity. So it's about get, building the backroom staff, uh, I think, first. And then we'll just... We'll ask who's available if anyone's already booked any holiday plans or whatever. Then obviously I don't want I don't want them to sort of clash uh, and things like that. If I but yeah, I I think we'll move you down to number nine and we'll have you medically. Um... <laughs> Do you know what we haven't talked about? Remember that I hit the best ball in the world for one of the biggest sixes ever. How you good hit, was that? You hit two sixes in two balls, did you not? And three in that knock. Yes. Yeah. That I. Do you know what? Why have, I'm amazed we haven't talked about that. That was a, that was an exceptionally entertaining innings, actually. Yeah, I was I, I was having to give it the man's job, calm on the outside, but I was buzzing on the inside. But was it was it a premeditated approach, or was it those things that was just like an out of body experience, like like Paul Simon says that writing Bridge Over Troubled Water was? Was that your was that sort <laughs> of like it was for you? Is that is that where you and Paul Simon overlap? That that innings no, and that that's absolutely that not. I, I just the only thing I said to Johnny is right if this. If he bangs if he bangs this in, I'm just swinging. That's basically what I said. I've got the wrong contact lenses in. I'm just going to swing whatever they're doing. Yeah. Can, you, can you shout yeah. now when the bowler lets go of it, and I will swing? Yeah. <laughs> uh, who is your? Um, do you have a person like at school? I was very bad at cricket, but there was one boy that was a really good bowler that, for whatever reason, I used to be able to sort of hit 
very successfully in the nets. Is there someone that is completely amazing in the England team that for whatever reason, when you're batting against them in the nets, you feel you've just got one over on them? I faced Chris Wokes for the first time. I'd never, ever faced him um, in England net sessions ever. Obviously, obviously Chris is an all-rounder. We seem any, to always any, any good? bypass. He got me out first ball, clipped the top of off. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, yeah that's enough that's enough of that I've got my eye on yeah. that yeah I can, I, I can see what, I can I see what he does yeah. I took my gloves off and walked out I was like that's why they call him the wizard did you uh, do they call him the wizard Wiz the wizard yeah Wiz the wizard who's got the uh, most uh, appalling nickname currently don't, don't say anything that will have legal ramifications <laughs> I'm trying to think Burns Standard Burnsy Hass Hamid Three, who got three? Mala, Milan. Derby Milan. Moody, Rudy Allen, De- DeGeneres, or whatever it's called. Uh, Stokesy gets, Stokesy gets Beast. Right. Um, Bluey, Besto, Jose, Joss. Joss Butler, Joss Butler. Well, Le- Leach, who's got the, the, does everyone call him the nut? The nut, uh, Jimmy Brody. Nah, nut. Robo gets rig or sloth sometimes. Well, I think we're going to certainly have to bring Sibley got Sibley got fridge. <laughs> is that why has he got that? Is it has he got because he, he looked like a fridge because he's got a, a salad drawer um, <laughs> fit, put fitted. Um, yes, well, I, again, this sort of backroom staff that I'm assembling, I think we'll certainly have someone that's going to sort of try and get on top of the nicknames and sort of a bit more of a mm. a kind of something a bit more imaginative. Because again, I just think that will bring that will bring the team some energy. You're back in training because you're going to the West Indies soon. Yes. If you don't catch COVID in Stockton when you <laughs> when you come and see me, uh, what yeah. talk, talk us through your training program, uh, and then I'll talk you through mine. Um, a bit of running, a bit of weightlifting, a bit of bowling, a bit of batting, maybe a little bit of fielding, um, a bit of eating, a bit of eating well, a bit of sleeping, maybe the odd singing, whistling, clapping, humming, and then to finish off, maybe a little bit of scuttling. <laughs> Shuttle scuttles. <laughs> yes. Uh, when did you last do a bleep test? Uh, we haven't done them for years. We have the we have the yo-yo now, or the two the two kilometer run is the is the one that's you have to run two kilometers as fast as you can. The two k time trail, and that's that's what Josh Butler Josh Butler would always come first at. How far behind him would you be? He spoke second now. Zach Crawley's the man that beat Mary Berry. Oh, he gets called Mary Berry. Now that's a good nickname. That's a proper nickname. Why does he get called Mary Berry? Because when he grew his hair a little bit longer and he had that blonde, frumpy thing, he looked like Mary Berry. <laughs> Believe it or not, I actually started that and it's, it's, it's uh, cottoned on, so I'm very happy with I'm that. almost certain that you should be in charge of nicknames because you would have a sort of a strangely imaginative uh, streak to people. Um, well, we don't know what's going to happen at the West Indies, uh, but... Uh, but you're ready. Yeah. Miles, should we have a look in the mailbag? We haven't done the mailbag in a while. Uh, okay, so let us have a look at the mailbag. This is the mailbag for Middle Please Umpire Series 3, Episode 8, The Ashes Inquest. Uh, and uh, first letter is actually on the subject of cricketing nicknames. Um, uh, this is a letter from Tony Elbra. Uh, he says, love the podcast. Uh, thank you very much indeed. Uh, on the subject of cricketing nicknames, having joined Waverley Cricket Club some years ago, I was introduced to the captain who went by the nickname Mog. 
his real name was Adrian. Uh, for some reason, I never questioned this, as everyone at the club seemed to have an obscure nickname. I went about my business at the club for four years, even earning a nickname myself, Stokesy, owing to my ginger hair, or maybe my all-round cricketing ability. I'm not sure. Finally, at the pub after game, I asked the vice-captain where the nickname Mog came from. I was told that the long version of his nickname is Mogadon, which is a pill used to cure insomnia. <laughs> it... <laughs> Turns out it was very apt as I once watched him score a 10 not out from 25 overs <laughs> while batting at number three. Well, you know, frankly, he might come very to the West good. Indies with me. If we're going to genuinely see off the new ball, uh, that is what's required. Uh, oh, back to our old favourite, uh, cricketers in petrol stations. Um this is from Jonathan Earle. Uh, Dear Miles and Mark, uh, as the cricketers in petrol stations seems to be broadening out, I'm writing to share with you about the time when my wife, Alice and I, were in Sofa Workshop in Kingston-upon-Thames. Uh, we were viewing and trying. He's put try, the word trying in inverted commas here, so all sorts of images are instantly being thrown up. Uh, we were viewing and trying a two-seater brown leather sofa, sounds lovely, uh, when another couple casually saunter up the same sofa. They point at it, converse a little, before the gentleman casually, but quite firmly, kicks the leg of the sofa as if it was the standard way of aiding a sofa purchase decision. I look up at the gentleman a little surprised, only to see that the sofa kicker is none other than England spin legend Philip Clive Roderick Tufnell. The sofa was the last one, and being sold as X display, this kicking instant to me increased the value of my interest. But alas, my <laughs> wife wanted a different one. So unfortunately, I'm unable to claim that the sofa I'm currently sitting on has been kicked by toughers, at least brackets, at least to the best of my knowledge. Um, that Very is good. Proper glorious man. I, as a teenager, I encountered Philip Clive Roderick Tufnell in a in a pub in a, a sort of Spanish resort uh, and this was it was a very different game then this was actually during the height of the English summer and I said what are you doing here and he goes well I didn't get picked for the test match so I thought I'd come out here it was a different more more innocent time um, and I also have I told you this I, I was in the press box at um, it was the ashes um, when uh, Joffre hit Steve Smith and uh, I was doing um, View from the Boundary, I think. So I, I was up in that sort of media bit and uh, I realised that the person I was reaching across to pick up a pudding or what have you was Philip Clive Roderick Tufnell. And nervously, I don't know why, I, I panicked and I went, oh, hello, sausage. Uh, <laughs> uh, which I don't know, seems, seems an inappropriate way of greeting uh, uh, one of our, the, the great slow left armors of the British game. But a sofa nearly kicked by Philip Clive Roderick Tufnell. That's no bad thing. Uh, yeah, very happy. Yeah, very happy for people to write in with cricketers they've seen in branches of the sofa workshop uh, or perhaps, um, uh, you know, any any kind of, you know, perhaps in the haberdashery section of um, uh, your local department store. Um, so about, I suppose we're interested in people in their in their in their in their natural environments. Um, uh, this is uh, about keen spectating. This is from Adam Kent. Uh, hello, Miles and Woody. I've got a story about a very keen spectator that I thought you'd enjoy. Um, I grew up spending countless nights watching Kent at Canterbury, uh, and we always sat in the rowdy section of the stands. A lot of what was chanted went over my head at that age, but I can remember one particular spectator who was known as the Celery Man. When players at Fine Leg would come to sign autographs, he would always be there with a stick of <laughs> he would always be there with a stick of celery in his hand. He would try to brush the celery over the players, occasionally knighting them on both shoulders, and if successful, he charged around the boundary, screaming, "He's touched the celery!" <laughs> <laughs> He'd repeat this for every player who came close. Uh, every player who came close enough that sounds 
that sounds like uh, yeah, marvelous. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This sort of behaviour has gone out of the game. Um, <laughs> I wonder if, if if you're listening, Celery Man, you can get in touch. We'd be amazed to hear some of the, the roster of people that you've successfully uh, knighted with with the celery. Um, uh, here we go. A more famous spectator encounter. This is from Russell Warner. Um, isn't that the name of a holiday company? I can't recall. Anyway, Russell Warner, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you for writing in. Uh, He writes, hello, fellow cricket lovers. Uh, Picture the scene just before lunch on the second day of an Ashes test at Old Trafford, settling in for a quiet, relaxing couple of days. I suddenly spot a couple of rows away on the other side of the steps, none other than former guest of Middle Please umpire Merv Hughes. Merv wasn't really paying all that much attention to the game in front of him, but instead was tucking into the puzzle page of the Daily Mail. I eagerly elbowed my friend next to me, who just happened to also be Australian, to go and request a cheeky selfie with Mr Hughes. It took Jimmy a fair few minutes to pluck up the courage, but midst overs he ventured down the steps to Big Merv. Sorry to bother you, Mr Hughes, but do you mind if I have a photo with you? Now, Merv was clearly struggling with his Sudoku, and in a shot downed his glances and turned to Jimmy with an almighty bark, uh, best Aussie accent, please. You aren't sorry, are you, mate? You're interrupting me doing my quiz page. I, I don't know if that was, that was probably my best, not the best you've heard. I can't actually remember whether Jimmy actually got the photo he desired as the terrified look on his poor face dominates my recollection of events. But I do recall Jimmy's complete reluctance to then approach, to then approach Jeff Thompson in the champagne tent at lunch. Gosh, that sounds absolutely terrifying. Um, we yes we uh, the listeners weren't 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 privy to this but we when um, Merv was on the show he um, uh, was having some IT issues and we <laughs> Mark and I absolutely cowered for about twenty minutes while uh, Leon our tech wizard had to talk <laughs> had to talk Merv through his <laughs> IT issues and uh, uh, and it was <laughs> it was it was an absolutely terrifying sight. So the thought of it, the sort of witnessing his anger from only inches away is a <laughs> genuinely terrifying prospect. If uh, anyone could pull Leon's body from the Thames, um, we'd be quickly <laughs> appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and here we have oh I didn't know we got this uh, here we, we, go. made, we made actually met at the World Cup final we met Sean Fitzpatrick the New Zealand rugby legend in the yeah. toilet right. and when he was having a piss it said um, excuse me mate can I get a picture please and he like mid piss turned around and went well not the minute mate <laughs> <laughs> mid slash um. <laughs> <laughs> right, uh, there's, que- there's questions for us, Mark. Um, so, uh, I didn't know this happened. This is excellent. Um, this one's from Johnny Bramley. Uh, Mark, how would you feel about me launching a petition for some kind of Markwood hostile takeover of Woodhorn Mining Museum in Ashington? I feel like the marketing couriers have certainly missed a trick on the naming front. Uh, Mark, how would you feel about such a petition? Yeah, um, I'm all for it. Um, although I wouldn't like to take the history away from Woodhorn Museum either. But I see what he's saying. And you know, if he if he's up for it, I could certainly maybe if I can't get the middle please on my stick out on the back of my back, maybe Mark Wood's Woodhorn Museum would, would make a nice change. Peter Baines says, uh, or writes, uh, or perhaps he dictated it and did say it. Uh, anyway, the missive is as follows. Marvellous podcast, most enjoyable for the English cricket enthusiast. Uh, here's follows a question for Mr Jupp. I was wondering whether Damien Trench would ever take himself off to Lords or the Oval to watch a test match in the summer months. I'm not sure that he has the patience or the time to sit through five days, but I think he could manage the first day. Uh, Damien Trench, I Mark is a character I used to write used to write a radio series called In and Out of the Kitchen on Radio 4 and Damon Trench was a um a sort of a cookery writer who was a, a, a control freak who was not in control. Uh um 
and uh, would get <laughs> into a series of increasingly panic situations. I think, yeah, you're, uh, yes, Peter, I'm not, I'm not sure uh, at all um, uh, if Damien would have the patience for cricket. I suppose he'd like to go to county cricket when it was just sort of quiet and calming, uh, essentially. But I think the, the rowdiness of test cricket, especially if he was watching people misuse celery, uh, would be very upsetting <laughs> for him. Um, the, my real question, he says, is uh, would what would Damien bring along to eat over the course of the day? My daughter Julia is somewhat obsessed with Damo at the moment. Uh, barely a moment of her existence goes by without the sound of him and Anthony gently bittering in the kitchen, uh, a most agreeable state of affairs. It is her belief that he would pack something fresh and flavourful but what that is the question we'd like to pose to you uh wishing you very well indeed peter and indeed uh juliet well damien trench is a very pedantic particular man uh, and i imagine he has quite uh high um sort of demanding standards when it comes to uh packing uh your perfect picnic for a day at the cricket um uh, so would it be a, would, it, would it be a lord style picnic or would it be like a an up north hearty picnic I think he would. Uh, he's very, very keen, Damien, on sort of um, you know using local foods where possible. Damien is more sort of uh, 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 good food done well. Um, uh, so maybe some sort of hearty things. The most Damien Trench cricket thing. A guy, Nick Nick Revel, who uh, wrote actually wrote an episode of uh, In and Out of the Kitchen in the last series. I went to the Oval with him once, and uh, he actually sent an email advance asking asking what we were all bringing in our picnic, so none of it clashed. Uh, and when we got there, he'd, he'd brought some egg mayonnaise sandwiches. And uh, as he got open his rucksack and handed them out to me and James, who were with, <laughs> I just remember him saying, um, "The mayonnaise is homemade, by the way." Uh, so that's possibly <laughs> the most, the most Damien thing I've seen. Uh, I will think about that, and I will record a mini Damien Trench monologue, uh, maybe in the next uh, podcast. Although this is several worlds colliding. Uh, so uh, just a reminder for our. our, our uh, ever groaning mailbag, uh, of course, cricketers at petrol stations or other notable encounters. Uh, a new sort of benchmark has been set now for cricketer spotting. Uh, so we've, uh, we've made it into the world of uh, sofa works. Uh, you know, what happens if you encounter Derek Pringle in a branch of Ryman's? Uh, perhaps you've spotted. <laughs> uh, perhaps you've spotted Nick Knight becoming irate in a branch of Harvester. Uh, do do right. <laughs> <laughs> do do write in uh, perhaps you've seen mark wood angrily demanding yet more gravy here to toby carvery uh do do as ever write in uh, any amusing cricketing injuries nothing that makes us wince uh best and worst matches in which you've uh, uh played or indeed um uh watched or officiated uh umpiring incidents of course uh also welcome on the back of the uh light-hearted and uh breezy jaunt through the recent ashes series uh any uh, uh tour stories you have as well would be um uh, most welcome hi it's david gower here uh yes it's me look it's it's slightly embarrassing but look mark and miles they've they've forgotten the email address again so look if you've got any cricketing tales, stories, whatever it might be you want to send to them, please email them at middleplease at hotmail.com. Um, and if that's too much, well, try Twitter or Instagram. Look, I mean, this sounds like I'm crawling here, but we, we have been fortunate enough to be shortlisted by the uh, judging committee, who are all great people that we have the highest respect for, uh, for best cricket podcast in the Sports Podcast Awards. Uh, it's not quite the ashes. We'd be very grateful for your vote. Uh, it's partly down to audience votes and partly judges' votes from here. If you go to sportspodcastawards.com, uh, you would be able to vote for this podcast, only, though, if you think that we're deserved of uh, 
deserving of uh, of, of of such an honour. Uh, lovely mailbag there. Have you, Mark? Have you, as a, as a child, obviously you you grew up with uh, Harmo as your local hero. Did you have you ever encountered cricketers in an unusual uh, place or just out of context, as in not not wearing their tracksuit in a service station? Um, I once saw Stephen Harmson fall over his wall. Um, drunk with these Chinese and the Chinese spilled all over his, his floor because he couldn't work out the code for his fence. Does that count? Uh, you've got to be quite drunk before your fence has a code. What's 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 going on there? Was this during his playing career? <laughs> no, he'd finished. No. All right. <laughs> okay, he'd, yeah. he'd had a few too many and he couldn't work out the code for his gates. So he had to just <laughs> climb the wall. And the last thing I remember seeing him as I waved goodbye was that he didn't step over the wall. He was sat on top of it, like legs either side, and just casually fell to one side. <laughs> a beautiful, beautiful sight. Um, well, uh, Mark, you're off to the West Indies, um, I assume. I'm off to Stockton first. Are you definitely coming? Yes. With me, Jack D, Pepper Evans, uh, Marcus Brigstock, Tony Hawks. Um... Oh, Miles, you don't have to name these other people. All I care about is you. We're a partnership now. Touch gloves. Let's get on with it. I will make that extremely clear to the rest of my team that he's not <laughs> he's not here for you, Matt. Um, okay, well, that's, yeah, Stockton Globe, 17th. Do, do, I mean, you know, please uh, speak to your local ticket broker. Thank you for listening to this, um, at times, maudlin uh, <laughs> review of the Ashes series. Um, Mark, I do think the only appropriate way for this episode to end would be by to hear you whistling a happy tune. So please take it away. Uh, is that Here Comes the Sun? Yes, it is. Correct. Oh, yes. Yeah, that, that, that was the Nina Simone version, wasn't it? That was absolutely yes, beautiful, was. Mark. Mm, Very good indeed. You. Thanks for listening. Uh, we'll see you, uh, hear you. Uh, no, that's not how a podcast works. You'll hear us. Uh, I am slowly getting to grips with this with the media uh, uh, series series four. Whenever that whatever happens to be, unless of course the terms of my contract as uh, uh, part of the England uh, management prohibits me from uh, being involved in such projects. Uh, we hope to be speaking to you again soon. Shalom. Goodbye. Should be taken and is taken. Brilliant from Mark Wood. What a spell this has been. Sports Social Podcast Network.